My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. And on today's episode, I'll be taking a look at the recent Blu-ray re-release of Hugh Hudson's 1985 notorious mega-flop Revolution, a look at the Argentine independent road movie La Saqueas, and also a look at Once Upon a Time in Antonia. But before I begin, I just want to get a few things out of the way. Number one, if you haven't already and you want more of the 24 Frames cast, go over to the exclusive page on the blog. I have just posted another episode in the James Bond retrospective. Um, there's going to be a few more things going on there as well quite soon. So um, if you uh, want to know more about those, do check that page quite regularly. Also, if you want to um, follow me on Twitter, I'll give you the details at the end and you'll be able to get updates from that. Um, I would like to uh, ask something of the listeners as well, because over the past three months or so, I have noticed a dramatic increase in the amount of new subscribers to the show. And firstly, thank you all to those who have discovered the show and have emailed me in with some positive feedback. And I've got a impression from lots of the emails that have come in, and there have been quite a few actually over the past month, um, people have kind of warmed to the to what i'm doing with the show certainly kind of the um the kind of the range of films spoken about and things like that and um as i have said uh, on the previous episode as well you know i will be moving away from these kind of review episodes the, the, i will be still obviously be doing the criterion um roundups in these episodes but there will be some more kind of hitting the uh, the feed some bit more variety but i have noticed that one thing that would really help um to get more people uh subscribe to the show would be a few more reviews on iTunes. Now, I have a bit of an issue with iTunes because I don't think the way it's kind of set up is entirely fair. You have kind of like you know, independent podcasts like this really competing against the might of um, major networks. And I think it's sort of, um, I think it's important to support the sort of the more independent uh, podcasts because it, it dawned on me yesterday. And I was, um, I, was, I went to the cinema yesterday to watch The Master. And as I was walking home, I sort of thought to myself, well, if you have you know, a, a major network like something like Warner Brothers or Sony and people like that and Fox, you know, doing their own podcasts, which I'm not sure those ones do, to be honest. But I think like you know, TV channels certainly do, like HBO, NBC, and things. You know, you're hardly going to be getting um, balanced and fair criticism, and I think a lot of these podcasts are more like kind of propaganda pieces for the shows and the films that they're flogging. And, you know, what obviously it's a you know a valuable channel for them, but I do think it's important that they're kind of. Um, really sort of independent podcasts are able to kind of compete as well and although I'm asking you know, to, for people to write reviews of my own show I, I would ask that you do it for other podcasts that you listen to um you know it doesn't take long I'm certainly going to make a point of doing it over the next few days uh, I know that um you know other podcasters would certainly appreciate it and I think it's sort of time to sort of rise up a little bit against the uh, the monopoly of the corporations on iTunes I'm very political at the moment I'm reading a lot of um uh, a lot of books about censorship and kind of um modern history and things and um, I've really become quite a bored well I'm, I'm certainly bored of hearing me think about it so I've got this bit of a bee in my bonnet about these kind of like you know, these mega huge corporations taking over iTunes and um Perhaps my rather misguided belief is that they're going to stifle uh, fair and balanced criticism. But, you know, I, I do sort of think there's a point in there somewhere. So support your local podcast. Go on to iTunes, write a review. It really will be appreciated and it will help get more people listening to the show. So now that's out of the way, I'm going to get on with my first review of the week, which was Once Upon a Time in Antonia. Bir zamanlar Anadolu'da dersin, cüla bir yerde görev yaparken işte böyle böyle bir gece yaşamıştık dersin. Anlatırsın yani ne bileyim, masal gibi. 
20 senedir polis burada. Ne tipler gördüm. İnsan mı, hayvan mı anlayamazsın. İnsan değil misin oğlum? Allahsız mısın? Hadi. I have to begin by giving a small warning for this film because if you like fast-paced thriller minute cinema then do not for any reason watch Once Upon a Time in Antonia. You will be bored on a level you never thought imaginable and will probably want to watch a film like Crank immediately. Not that there's actually anything wrong with Crank of course. However, if you're a fan of slow-burning, glacially-paced, multi-led, ponderous musings on everything from regret, tradition, modernity and punishment, all interspersed with shots of wind-blowing and occasional scene that appears to have zero to do with what you think the film is actually about, then Once Upon a Time in Antonia will be something of a f- form of cinematic nirvana for you. One night we join a doctor, the local prosecutor, some soldiers, police officers and two criminals as they drive across the country, as they drive around the country trying to find what we presume is the body of a murder victim. As the night goes on, various possible plot strands begin to emerge. The cops are growing frustrated that the prisoners seem to be playing games with them. The army are a little concerned that the crime may have been committed in another legislative area and a seemingly innocuous discussion between the prosecutor and the doctor takes place. The prosecutor tells the doctor of a woman who gave the exact date she would die and then promptly died with no evidence of anything untoward. He signed the coroner's report off as being natural causes. But the doctor has another idea. It it is in his view entirely possible that it was suicide. When pushed further he explains that such an event could not be natural, that someone who knew what they were doing could easily make the prediction and take the prerequisite drugs to make it look like as if the death was natural when in fact it was suicide. It's at this juncture I am going to leave the plot description of the film here. To elaborate any more would not really do any justice to the story nor nor is it really overly indicative of what the film is actually about. The reason for my vagueness is because Once Upon a Time in Antonia is not a film that plays within conventional held views of narrative. Indeed its seemingly flippant attitude towards its various narrative strands will be enough for some people to check out long before the credits roll. For me, it was a cinematic delight from beginning to end. The Doctor, played by Mumat Uzna, at first seemed merely a bit part character. During the opening hour he is barely featured at all, and it's as if director Nuri Silon just started filming and eventually found him to be the most interesting of all the characters. As he begins to reveal details of his life, we find out he is a divorcee, his unwillingness to have a child being the major catalyst for the split. The prosecutor, played by Tanir Bursell, tells him he is better off that way. What type of a world would the child be born into anyway? We can tell that he is a man riddled with sorrow and doubt. Is the world really that bad? It is clear his wife was the love of his life, her absence leaving a gap in he has never been able to fill. None of the above is ever directly said by him and all us need do is simply stand in silence or move his eyes a little. Now, I can pretty much guarantee he will not feature anywhere near the Oscars this well for next year or whenever it is. And it kind of amazes me because I, I, I think one of the reasons why is because possibly the film won't just you know, which won't get the kind of the international exposure that it needs to kind of get the prerequisite amount of votes but it's one of those performances I I actually thought it was staggering uh, this performance and was completely blown away by it I I don't think I've ever seen anything so moving in quite a long time 
you know, having now made a short film and worked with actors, and you can see, you know, even standing around looking at the, the sort of the, you know, uh, the kind of the care and detail that goes into making that effective is incredible. And this performance, I felt, I knew this man simply by the expression on his face, and that will probably work against him. Yeah, you know, and on the whole, I just don't think that kind of acting like this gets the recognition it deserves. You can almost guarantee, I think, that um, someone like Daniel Day-Lewis will be walking away with, you know, for Lincoln or perhaps even Joaquin Phoenix for The Master. Although I, I don't really think that you can call mumbling acting, but whatever. I think it's a kind of a... <clears throat> it is a testament to the rest of the cast in the film that he never really kind of totally steals the show either. Every single one of them feels like a real person, from Marit Kilic as is it the eager yet misguided police officer to Ferret Tanis and suspect Keenan. Everyone involved delivers mesmerising yet quite different performances. There are real stories behind these people, which, although are only ever kind of hinted at, I honestly think that you could go off and make a film about any of them and it would still be an incredibly compelling piece of work. As time ticks on, the film appears to change narrative direction, as time ticks on, the film appears to change narrative direction. Or is it searching for something else entirely? The group stop at a tiny village where for about 40 minutes the case is virtually discarded as the village elder talks passionately about the need for the prosecutor to lobby the local government to build a new morgue for them to keep bodies in an adequate state before burial so families can come and see them. Whilst this is happening, a beautiful young girl serves them food and drink and once again the focus of the scene subtly shifts. The doctor can't take his eyes off her. Clearly she reminds him of his wife, or indeed the daughter he never had. What you take from moments like this is largely what you put in. On the one hand, it is a profound statement about the power of the past and its impact on the present. Yet the scene also has another deeper level. The girl is not just there as a conduit for the doctor to reflect on his life. Her beauty, and indeed any potential she may possess, will be lost serving men food and drink, being married off to someone whom her parents think will benefit them and the rest of the village. On the one hand it's a critique of the culture, the fact that such predetermination can be imagined on one gender in society is tragic. Tradition should not and never be treated as something that should be revered simply because it is the way of doing things. The village elder talks about sustaining the village, yet deep down the prosecutor knows it's not really worth saving anyway. Would it really matter if everyone was to move on and go away anyway? On the other side is a reflection of the men, trapped in a life that offers no way out. The town in which they live is, is a dead end. Their past haunt them and the future will no doubt be more of the same. Their world is small and their lives are ticking by. It is possibly one of the most profound moving scenes I've personally seen in cinema for a very long time. As the story moves on we eventually find the body. There is a suggestion that the man accused may be hiding something, that he might not even be the murderer at all. The group struggle to understand why the body has been bound in such an inhumane way and once again I felt that this was such a refreshing twist on the crime genre. So often we are supposed to be seeing the who and the why. In this case the crime is almost secondary to the police trying to understand how someone could be so cruel to another human being. As the film works towards its conclusions we are offered a resolution of sorts to at least one of its main storylines. 
But Once Upon a Time in Antonia is not about offering nicely wrapped strands. Indeed, its concluding image and painful sound effects will no doubt frustrate those waiting for something more resounding. The success of the film really, I think, comes down to the work of Nuri Silen. For anyone who has ever felt trapped somewhere in a town or village, you can understand the sense of oppression this creates. The cuts to litter-strewn streets and ugly buildings may seem like this is some form of attempt at kind of Terence Malick transcendentalism or art for art's sake, but they add to the mood and the atmosphere of oppression of this place. Likewise, when they're playing out on the plains of Antonia, the landscape dwarfs the group, yet through the blocking of the characters, it still makes for moments that feel incredibly claustrophobic as the group stand around debating as to what should be going on. It is an epic length film that goes at its own pace. One argument that could be levelled against it is self-indulgence. Do you really need so many cutaways to the wind blowing over grass? Is a protracted scene in the village entirely necessary? All these questions are better answered by simply watching it. Of all the films I have watched this year, none have effectively moved me as much as this. Occasionally a film comes along that knocks you for six. This year has been the tipping point for me personally when it comes to my tolerance for those who decry their beloved Hollywood has abandoned them for sequels and reboots. The tonic is out there, although you might just have to work a little bit harder to find it. Vengo parte del señor Fernando. ¿El es tuyo? Sí, es mi hija. Okay, so next up was from Argentina and director Pablo Giorgelli's feature debut, Las Acaeas, which essentially is the rather charming tale of a truck driver and a young mother he's driving from Paraguay to Buenos Aires. Now, it's a film that left me rather conflicted. On the one hand, it's a very sweet film that has its heart in the right place, where it's well acted and adequately directed. On the other hand, it is a bit, well, not really all that much. Now, truck driver Ruben, played by German De Silva, is a rough, gruff type with an estranged son and not a great deal going on in his life. Jacinta, played by Heve Girate, is a young mum who, along with her baby, are travelling down to Buenos Aires to be reunited with her family. Their relationship is clear from the start. Ruben smokes when the child is in the cab, he can't stand the screaming, and Jacinta doesn't want to talk about who the father of the baby actually is. At one stage, Ruben almost buys a pair of coach ticket, but a change of conscience leads him to carry on the journey with them. As the old grizzled heart begins to melt, he doesn't smoke, he likes making the baby laugh, there's even a sign he is a little jealous of attention being paid to Jacinta at a stop. And of course we find out he has a son who he doesn't really speak to anymore for something that's not really specified, but we can probably assume it's because he's been an absent father. Lassicaeus is an entirely predictable, if perfectly watchable film. A good story well told not have, does not have to be entirely original, but what it does need to be is compelling and enough to make you forget the fact that what you are seeing is something that you've already experienced several times before. Now, although being simply fine, Lassacare suffers from exactly that problem. It is just fine. Virtually nothing is said for the first 50 minutes of the film other than two characters getting to know each other through a few looks and glances. I'm fine with this type of storytelling. It doesn't need loads of dialogue and exposition to tell me what is going on. But what I do need is something more than what you get in Lassacare. To put it bluntly, 
Nothing that in, nothing interesting happens between the characters. They don't stop anywhere that is interesting, nor do they really do anything that is interesting. Yes, you do care about them and there are moments of light humour, but as the film went on, I felt like I was merely waiting for it to start, which it never really did at all. The analogy I can use is that of short films. Many short films don't tell a narrative, so to speak. They are sketches. I'm personally not kind of keen on these types of shorts. They seem to be a little kind of cheap in a way. Lassacaeus seems to be about building towards its final five minutes, which yes, for sure, was all quite satisfying. However, what went before simply felt like it was one long prologue. There is no doubt that it is superbly acted and you feel that both the characters, however inconsequential their meeting, that this events of the film have had a profound effect on them. And again, hats off for the restraint with the screenplay. Yet I don't understand the plaudits from the critics who have hailed it as some kind of modern masterpiece. It feels more like a vote against certain types of cinema, i.e. Hollywood, and I'm kind of so, you know, I'm too sick of how overblown and dull Hollywood films are for the most part. There is simply way too much in the way of emotional manipulation about them to make me actually feel anything genuine for them. Now neither Rubin or Jacinta are particularly good looking, they are, like most of the world, just two very average people. There's no syrupy score to tell you what to think and Giorgelli's direction doesn't force you into emotional corners. Indeed it is subtlety that is often seldom seen. But does subtle and underplayed instantly mean that Lassacaeus should be propelled to the heights of cinematic brilliance? I would contest not. Perhaps I'm a little harsh, but in my opinion, the film has got an easy ride. So many of the reviews I have read have pre-warned the viewer that not much happens at all. This type of kind of criticism, which is basically telling you not to expect much, and then kind of tells you what a wonderful film it is, it seems a little bit kind of contradictory to me. And I think it is indicative of how blurred and indeed warped critical thinking has become. As I said, it is a perfectly watchable film, yet to me has almost no repeat viewing appeal whatsoever. The same could be said for a great deal of films, yet these tend to be the ones I consider average. In another universe, Lacaeus could have easily been sat on a shelf and never been heard of. Somehow it has become a global success, especially with critics with wide distribution across the world. It's more deserving than a great deal of films out there, but in the age of hyperbolic film criticism, I think it's important to not to overemphasise the apparent quality of films like this. Yes, it is a little different, yes, it is quite watchable, but a genius and original exploration of suppressed love, I don't think so. Some critics have said it is one of the must-see films of the year. I don't think I could honestly say that about it. It is a perfectly watchable film, but nothing more, and I think to hype it up to those levels is to its detriment really because I don't think it could possibly live up to the expectation that many people have for it but if you fancy something that's kind of light and frothy and uh, is a kind of inoffensive way of spending 80 minutes then you might want to check it out. All these men here we all fought for something. You take it from us and we're going to fight again. He was a common man, forced into war, fighting to protect his son. Sons go to war because fathers don't. Thank God you're alive. She was a woman of wealth and privilege, with everything to live for and everything to lose. You cannot belong to this family and fight on the other side. They fell in love 
at a time when the old world was dying and a country was being born. The freedom in your muskets, boys! It was the time of revolution. the producer of Rocky, and Hugh Hudson, the director of Chariots of Fire and Greystoke, comes a story of love and courage. Al Pacino. Revolution, starring Donald Sutherland and Nastasia Kinski. When collecting his Academy Award for Chariots of Fire, screenwriter Colin Welland announced to the Academy that the Brits were coming. This, I think we can attribute this rather bombastic statement to the giddiness of winning an Oscar because unfortunately, Colin's words have never really come true. The 80s were a kind of a forced dawn for the re renaissance of the British film industries. And for many, and myself included, one of the biggest questions is why Britain does not compete with Hollywood on an international scale with films? And the answer is very, very simple. It's because we can't. Yet, it hasn't stopped us from trying with sometimes disastrous results. Now, the poster boy for the 80s British film industry failure was Hugh Hudson's Revolution. Made with a budget of $28 million, starring Al Pacino and filmed here in Britain, its total gross in the US was $356,000. Savaged by critics, ignored by audiences, Pacino himself waved the white flag and didn't make a film for four years. Like other high-profile flops such as Heaven Gates, Ishtar, The Fall of the Roman Empire, John Carter, the film was judged by low numbers alone. It is part of a film culture that is truly beyond me. Yes, the fact it flops may be a story, but what about the actual film? The most pertinent question to me always is, is the film any good and when separated from the news story of its contemporary release, its box office numbers seem even less important. So this episode's Blu-ray review, I'm going to focus on the recent BFI re-release of Revolution and I must add the following. Hugh Hudson was many in a long line whose film was released against his wishes. In his view, Revolution was not ready for audience when it was put into cinemas in 85. He wanted to add a voiceover and to tighten the film up a little, but Goldcrest, the now defunct studio who backed the film, put it out anyway. The only people who didn't ignore the film were the organisers of the Razzes, which showered the film with accolades. Hudson was packed off to direct a jail, but this was never stopped him from campaigning to have another crack at Revolution. Happily, Hudson has been granted his wish. With Pacino in tow, the pair recorded a voiceover and Hudson snipped 10 minutes off the running time. To be honest, I have never seen Revolution before. I played tennis with someone who was in it, but I've never experienced what people saw in the cinema in 85. I can't comment on what it was people objected to so much at the time, and I doubt the mentality of daggers out film criticism has changed much since the 80s. Sadly, some films just become magnets for sniping. But I can comment on the recent director's cuts, and the results I am pleased to report is that Revolution is far from the disaster many think although it's hardly a lost masterpiece either. 
Set during the American War of Independence, it follows the adventures of Tom Dodd, played by Pacino, and his son Ned, who unwittingly sign themselves up to fight on the side of the Americans. Tom wants to do everything he can from, to keep his son alive, which entails fighting alongside him at various battles, being used as a life bait in a fox hunt, and rescuing him from being press-ganged into service in the British Army. He and Ned's story frequently crosses paths with Daisy, played by Natasha Kinski, a well-to-do society girl kicked out of her family for supporting the revolution, and also a British officer, played by Donald Sutherland, who becomes something of a personal nemesis for the pair. Hugh Hudson's film is one of those frustrating works where you can see the DNA of something that never seems to quite go in the direction you want. The first aspect of it that particularly impressed me was Hudson's directing. Made prior to the CGI revolution, this very much feels like an old school epic, yet with a refreshingly modern spin to it. During the film's early scenes in which Ned and Tom arrive in New York, the chaos and intrinsic fear of the population is captured perfectly. The camera glides around the streets and the crowds are whipped into a frenzy. It is honestly hard to tell what is going on and Tom not wanting to get involved, I was generally anxious to see what was going to happen next. Much of the dialogue is actually quite hard to make out and when young Ned finds himself in the army, Tom isn't given any time to decide what to do, he must simply join up. Hutton doesn't overly drama this moment, it comes across as something far more organic. Ned and Tom's lives have simply changed. Ned and Tom's lives have simply changed and Tom must deal with this trying to save his son. I found it impossible not to be moved by the paternal struggle of the character. Hutton does not present the Americans being overly noble, they dupe children into becoming cannon fodder for heaven's sake, so how can you really kind of look at them as being all that noble? Hudson strikes a good balance between the intimate and the epic. The scale of the film changes greatly from small personal moments, such as when Tom and Ned sleep in a cornfield, to massive epic battles, all handled with an assuredness that in the case of the battle sequence, involved the vivid portrayals of the horrors of 17th century warfare. Shot in the 235 frame with director Bernard Lutich, the first thing some may notice is that the film was not actually filmed in America. It was made in England, but in reality it doesn't really matter. Revolution is a muted film with pale colour palette. To use a word I hate, it is very dowdy. Compared to its contemporaries, it must have looked like an equivalent to a trip to Bognorizas in favour of a two-week holiday in Disney World. For me, though, it's perfectly in keeping with the film's narrative. The heroism of Tom comes not in his mad suicidal devotion to the war effort, but his determination to keep his son alive. He doesn't want his son to be merely wasted in some pointless battle. Pacino gave up acting four years after Revolution. It seems he was the target of a great deal of the film's vitriolic critics. Although at times he resorts to shouting Pacino and has a rather ridiculous haircut and odd Brooklyn accent, it's not as awful as many would have you think. There's a genuine look of anguish in those eyes. You deal with his pain and longing to keep Neg alive. And yes, it's a bit hammy, but you can tell Pacino is taking this very seriously and it didn't deserve the four-year hiatus that he felt he needed to go on. Ned is played first by Sid Owen and then by Dexter Fletcher, and both do a fine job in betraying the character. Sutherland too has a quite a memorable cameo appearance, coming across as a kind of genuinely, really kind of evil, nasty British officer. However, despite the plus points, there are some more than enough things fundamentally wrong with Revolution to stop it from ever being anything more than just an okay film. One of the first things Hudson wanted to include in his director's reading was his voiceover. In the interim, Hudson clearly had become a fan of The Thin Red Line because the voiceover in the film very much echoed that film. 
However, the voiceover in Revolution does not work at all. Part of the problem is, is that it seems way too profound and dare I say poetic for the actual character that Pacino is playing. By trade he is a trapper, he has no formal education and the voiceover sounds absolutely nothing like anything else he says in the entire film. It's as if it's two completely different characters and for me at least was a complete failure. Much of the time the voiceover is just statement of the obvious and in fact is incredibly boring. The film also takes place over many years and I reckon Test has the feeling of a TV series being edited down into two hours. Daisy, played by Kinski again, is just a complete waste of time. Her character is utterly pointless to an extent. She's there just to give a hint of a love story, but really we'd be better off with her not being there at all. What the film needs is a tighter narrative focus. But a disaster this film is most certainly not. And indeed, it does have its moments that I'd say are actually bordering on the sublime. But it is not some underrated masterpiece either. It's actually very average, but it is not awful. It's not the sin against cinema you may have been led to believe. It is again indicative of the idiocy of film criticism. Sometimes films are just hated for fashion. Think about something like John Carter. Every one-star review I saw is merely evidence of people who are having their mind made up for them. So what if it didn't make any money? Get over that fact and watch the actual film. I don't think I could recommend buying Revolution. I, I, the Blu-ray does look good, it has a good sound, but certainly it's worth a rental. It is, I think the direction of the epic, I suppose, went kind of very kind of glitzy, and this isn't. It's a very dirty film to watch. It has brilliantly composed battle scenes, and there are a lot worse ways you can spend two hours so anyway, that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can at um, 24 Frames Cast. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com and you can f- come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Do check out the exclusive page. As I said before, there are more shows on that. So many thanks for listening and I will be back soon with another episode.